Let's not get all hung up in all that talk about doctrine. Let's just get together and love one another. Before you throw all the doctrine out the window, you need to think hard about what the word doctrine really means. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins with a Christmas shopping escapade to illustrate how doctrine about God can invade the most unexpected places. Anything about the Gary Smalley tapes about marriage, he talks about the importance of going mauling with your wife. You know what that is, mauling with your wife? It's when you go and you go shopping. And Gary loves to describe how mauling for a wife is not just going like hunting to buy one particular thing, but it is kind of a, a, a kind of an intimate relational time. And some of you that are in the Gary Smalley seminars will understand what I'm talking about. And some of you, how many of you husbands have gone mauling since you've been involved in this? So, well, if it's any, if it, this is something that's really contrary. For my own marriage relationship, Gary's teaching is totally reversed. I'm the one that likes to go and have relationship time sitting for two hours in El Chico's and talking and, and going from one store browsing. Mary doesn't like to browse. She doesn't like to sit. She goes hunting when she goes mauling. And she was hunting for a manger scene for a friend. We already have several manger scenes. We got one when we were in Israel. But there was a friend of ours that wanted a manger scene. And so Mary was hunting for a manger scene. And Mary's serious about her hunting. I mean, you run from one mall to the next, searching diligently through stores. In fact, it is a physical exercise. You don't have to ride your 10-speed. You don't have to lift weights. You just go mauling with Mary as you go from one mall to the next. We couldn't find it. I mean, all the manger scenes were cheap things. We just couldn't find the Fontanini that we really wanted to find, these exquisite Italian carved manger figures. Finally, we went into Foley's over in Arlington. Mary, when she said, I'm going to go upstairs, there's a Christmas section up there, and she goes up there, and, and she's really taking lessons from Deb Lowry. You've got to dig through everything to find what you're looking for. Finally, buried over in a corner where no one else would find it, there she found these exquisite Italian manger scene figures. Well, then you know what happens. You have to collect the wise men, there's three of them, Casper and all the names they've given them. You have to get all those. Then you have to get, you know, the shepherds. And they've even invented some figures that I've never even heard of. Uh, you have to get the sheep. You've got to get the, the, the camels. And on and on it goes. Well, it was taking Mary hours to get all, not really, but to get all these figures together. Finally, she gets the whole manger scene assembled. No salesman anywhere. I mean, here it's Christmas time, and, and maybe some of you work for Foley's, and, and I'm sure that Foley's is usually right up to snuff, and it wasn't at the peak time of the mall on Thursday morning, I'm sure. But we could not find a salesperson anywhere. So I decided that I would reconnoiter trying to find a salesperson. And I decided, like any good male, that I would begin looking in the men's department because I'm really not into, into manger scene figures, but I decided I'd go look among the Ralph Lauren shirts and the polos and the dockers and all that kind of stuff. And I was saying, man, alive, inflation has radically changed. Man, how can anyone even afford to buy a shirt these days? When suddenly, across Foley's, I hear these words. I hear Johnny Mathis singing. Now, Johnny Mathis just brings all kind of nostalgia back for me, which will tell you how old I am, because I remember being a 15 and 16-year-old, and Johnny Mathis was singing Shangri-La and all that kind of... You'll know exactly what era I'm from. And he also sang Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. 
And all of you have probably heard Johnny Mathis' Christmas Carol, the essence of chestnuts on a roasting, roasting on an open fire, because Johnny can just jump the octave at the end, and he flies with the reindeer and all that kind of stuff. Well, he wasn't singing that. In fact, he was singing some words that you have sitting in your lap. Open your hymn book to num- page number 181. I want you to do that because I want you to look at the words that were wafing over Foley's Mall. Number 181, hark the herald angels sing, and this is the verse I hear, verse number 2, look at it. Christ by highest, heaven adored. I couldn't believe it. The pre-existence of Christ is being proclaimed across the mall. Christ by highest, heaven adored. Speaking about God's Christ dwelling in heaven, in his pre-existence. Speaking about the angelic chorus that's adoring the Son of God and worshiping him. Second line, Christ the everlasting Lord. Christ eternality. The fact that the second person of the Trinity lives, has lived and will live forever and ever and ever. Also the Lord, the fact that he is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at the next line. Late in time, behold him come. The book of Hebrews saying, in these last days, in the past, God spoke to us by prophets and and different methods of revelation. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. That's what it means by the the late in time, behold, he comes. Look at the next line. Offspring of a virgin's, virgin's womb. They're proclaiming the virgin birth right in a public shopping mall. The doctrine of the virgin birth. I mean, that's one of the fundamentals of the faith. The virgin birth. Look at the next line. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's the incarnation. What a beautiful way Charles Wesley expressed the incarnation. Veiled in flesh, we can see the Godhead. And the tremendous balance of Christ's divinity and his humanity is right there. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with man to dwell. There's another emphasis upon the fact that Jesus was not only divine, but he was also fully man. He fully identifies with all of your humanness. And he, and he understands all your thought processes and all your feelings and all your, all your will, all your decision making. Jesus is not some deity that's out there in never, never land, never identifying with human need and human concerns. He's actually been a human being. He is still a human being today. He is fully human. What a tremendous theology. And this is going out over Foley's. Look at the next line. It says, please as men with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel, im in Hebrew means with, or Emmanu means with us. E means with, uh, the U ending adds us. Emmanu means with us. El, you all know that, God. The Canaanite word for, for the ultimate God. The general word used for God, like our English word, God. So it means God with us. And they're declaring this in Foley's, right in the middle of a shopping spree. Then it says, hark the herald angels sing, and certainly the angels should sing that incredible theology, glory to the newborn king. It just bowled me over. I couldn't believe it. Johnny Mathis singing across Foley's this incredible theology. You say, Dave, come on, get with it. How many people do you think that were shopping even thought about what you just described to us? In fact, you just bowled us over with a whole bunch of scobbledygook about theology and doctrine. I mean, do you think that, that that's really what was going on? In fact, you know, nobody, nobody even protests Hart the Herald Angels. Maybe they will after I've exposed it. 
You know, why not? Because I could argue in a court. It's just cultural background noise for our society. It's just to get you, for you to get your Christmas list out, for you to start getting out your Visa and MasterCard and American Express and ringing up the, the cash registers for them all. It's just background noise. And I understand that. That's often true in our culture. What I want to ask you this morning, is it background noise for you? Is it background noise for you? You see, I expect this secular world not to tune in to the great fundamental convictions of the, Chris, of the Christian faith. Last time we were together, I started talking to you about, about leadership. And I didn't make a very effective transition because a lot of you have been coming up to me during the week and say, David, you started out talking to us about leadership and you introduced how there's an absence of leadership in the land and, and we understand all that and we got that. And we understand that you went on and said that God doesn't look in big industry and big money and big politics to find his leaders. He begins in our homes. He begins under the roof of our houses. We got that. But then suddenly you started talking about Acts 17 and and all this stuff about God. We didn't get that. So I need to make that clear. See, what we're talking about, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be someone who becomes an example for someone else, it's going to begin with the convictions of your soul. It's going to begin when you understand what you believe and why you believe that. And one of the things that I've never done, and I've really never gone through and talked to you about D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E, doctrine. In fact, even mention the word to an American audience today. I, I, tell, I tell a pastor, they say, what are you preaching on these days? They, well, I'm going to do a series on doctrine. Oh, yuck. Relationship? You know, marriage? You know, getting our self-image together? Man, that, that'll really, that cuts it, man. We got it there. Or how to, how, to, how to discipline our kids and how to keep them from tearing our house down. And that's all really important. But the American church is really in to a focus on us. And you know, that's what's part of the problem. Because we have forgotten the connection. And you know, part of it's the theologian's fault. Because to be honest with you, the theologians that I know, for the most part, I can't even understand what they're saying. And I've got a PhD or a THD in what they're trying to teach you. And I have to get my dictionary out. And German theologians are horrible. They, if you, they make up German words that even Germans don't know. I mean, theologians are notorious for talking about things like lapsarianism and super and infra and backwards and forwards. And who even knows what lapsarianism is? And they talk about big, hairy words like the, the hypostatic union of Christ. and all. They have all kinds of jargon they use. You know what's happened? Most of you say, well, man, I can't ever understand that. So doctrine doesn't have anything to do with me. In fact, I don't even like the word doctrine. It's a big end thing to say. We don't talk about doctrine. Do you realize every time you hear someone speak, you hear doctrine? Every time. You can't hear someone talk without them giving you something that they believe, content that they believe. You just can't get away from that. The word doctrine just means teaching. Whenever someone teaches you, they're giving you teaching. That's all that doctrine means. What I want us to do, if we're going to generate leaders in our church, if we're going to generate leaders in our families, if we're going to get, generate leaders for our society, if we're going to be Christ-like leaders, then we need to come back and ask ourselves, what do we believe? And we begin in just the most fundamental place I can begin. What about our beliefs about God? Now, what I want us to do is I want us to go back to Acts chapter 17, and I want you to pretend to be Paul's audience. Remember we talked, a lot of you did get this, we talked about the Stoics and the Epicureans. Remember we talked about the Stoics being the heads, they're the rationalists, they're the ones that believe there's a world soul, they believe strongly in duty, 
So they're the hard-working executives that have their schedule exactly lined up and everything organized, but they live just basically for now. They do believe in the world soul, but, you know, that's kind of a nebulous, you know, way out kind of a thing, and maybe we'll connect with that sometime, somewhere out there. But what we really live for is this present life and duty and, 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 and material things and, and all that's involved in that. That's the Stoic. The Epicurean, remember, they're the heads. So you remember Stoics' heads. They're the ones that emphasize the, the, the mind. That's Ian Rand. If you know anything about the, the female novelist, any of you guys that think girls can't think, read Ian Rand. You'll, you'll, you'll meet a first-class female mind, much better than almost any male you'd ever read. But if you want to read about the Stoic, you want to read about the head, it's Ian Rand's Atlas Shrug. The person that just lives just according to reason, just according to logic, just according to rational, ra- uh, rational processes. That's the Stoic. We talked about another group. They're the, they're the hearts. They're the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans weren't just the playboys. They were the ones that believed that you needed to not just use your head, but you need to feel things with your heart. And our mind, we talked last time we were together how our society goes back and forth between the head and the heart. We have the rationalists, and then we have the feelers. We have the thinkers and the feelers. And that's a group that Paul's thinking about. They're a lot like people that you're going to meet this week. Most of the people that you're with that don't know Christ as their Savior, most of the people that are unbelievers, are in one of those two groups. A lot of your young friends, some of you have young friends that have just started out their career. They're basically heads or hearts. And they're usually just kind of living for now. And they're going to be running like that. And that's the kind of a group that Paul's talking to. And I want you to pretend that you're like that. I want you, just for in your imagination, I want you to think that you don't know Christ. You're agnostic. You just don't know. You're just kind of living for now. You're just trying to find your way through life. And you're just living as a secular person. In other words, you don't really worship God too much. You think about him when somebody dies that's close to you, or if you go to a wedding, you have to go to church. But it's not your usual thing. That's the kind of an audience that I want, you to, I want you to be this morning. Now, some of you, that won't be too hard. In other words, I want you to be pagans. Most pastors don't tell you to do that. I want you to be pagans a little bit, okay? Now, for some of you, that won't be too hard. Because you were pagans not too long ago, okay? Now, for some of the rest of you that were raised in Christian families, it'll be a real experiment and a new thing. But I want you to picture a group of pagans. They're gathered together on the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill. And this, this, this kind of short, bald-headed, his eyes are kind of messed up. He's not, a, he's not the riveting orator. The Apostle Paul, that's Paul. He's a Jew, and he's speaking on Mars Hill. And they think he's an old seed picker. They're telling him he's just grabbed some ideas hither and yon. But they're all gathered, all these sages of Athens the center of of first century philosophy, the classical center of the ancient world, the Apostle Paul is going to talk to this audience. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a series of questions that I want you to think about. Because a lot of you as believers, I have young people ask me all the time, they say, well, Dave, how do I know this is true? You know, I've been raised with this Jesus stuff, and I've been raised with the Bible is the word of God And I just have some doubts about that. Well, what I want you to realize, if you didn't believe in Jesus, if you didn't believe in God, if you said that you were an agnostic and somebody asked me, what's the difference between an atheist and an agnostic? The truth of the matter is there's not really many atheists. Atheist means I know, the privative know, with theos, God, no God. Atheist means I don't believe there's any God, no God. An agnostic, agnosis, no knowledge, means that I just don't know. 
There's not many people that are atheists. Hardly anybody. There's a few Madeline Miro here, but I hate to tell Madeline, there's just not a whole lot of people that say no God. Now, a lot of people live like there's no God, but not many people can really have an idea there's no God. Most people just don't tolerate that at all. But a whole lot of people, in fact, the end thing in the United States is saying, we just don't know. I mean, if you, if you want to really get whiffed in your office just, and your school and everything else, just say, I, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, you know, you, you, who knows? That's the whiffed thing in, the Amer- in America. Most of the audience that the Apostle Paul was speaking would be agnostic. I don't know. So Paul's going to try to take a group of people that are saying, I don't know about God. And he's going to try to help them to move towards I need to do some serious confrontation with God. The Christmas story begins with the Father in heaven. You ever stop and think about that? The Christmas story doesn't begin in Bethlehem of Judea and the Virgin Mary giving birth to a child. The Christmas story begins in eternity past. It begins with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit fellowshipping together and conceiving a whole plan of redemption of what it would mean to have relationship with human beings made in their image. And and, and God the Son is operating according to the will of God the Father. And they planned this whole thing. That's what the Bible teaches, as incredible as that might seem. So this Christmas story begins with God the Father. And you need to ask yourself, do I believe there's a God the Father? And what I want to get across to you from the bottom of my heart is I don't believe at all that what I just described to you about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit coming up with this redemptive plan that would involve the second person of the Trinity coming into this world and being born of a virgin. I don't believe for a minute that's just a story. And I want you to stop and think about what you think about it. And I want you to think about why you believe that or why you don't. So the Apostle Paul is beginning with that basic assumption, is there a God? Is there an invisible God that's there, that's really, really there? Not just a projection of our thinking, not just a a nice comforting pillow that we grab a hold of when life's kind of tough, but is there a genuinely, authentically, a God who's there? Now let's pretend that we say, I don't know. And we answer the question, well, I don't think there is. We even go more negative. I don't think there really is. I, I, I don't know, but I don't think there is. Do you realize that there's some tremendous doubts that you should have if there isn't any God? Now, most people popularly live as if there isn't any God. A lot of the people that you're going to be with this week are going to act like that. What I want you to do is think about, if you didn't believe that, here are some serious doubts about your position. The Apostle Paul begins his discussion in verse 22. It says, then Paul stood up. You can see him standing up at the meeting of the Areopagus. And he says, men of Athens. And we know there were some women there, so you ladies are involved as well, because one of the women at the end of this discussion receives Christ as their Savior. His name is Damaris. So there were men. So when, in this context, men and women. And often in ancient times, when they address men, they would also include women as well. So we have men and women of Athens. I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you are worshiping is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The very first question I want you to ask yourself, if God is not real, if God is not real, if God is not real, then why do all humans everywhere spend so much effort either worshiping or rejecting him? You see, if you're going to be agnostic about God, then one of the things you need to come to grips with is why is it 
If there is no God, then why is it wherever you go on planet Earth, any place, any time, any group of human beings that you get together with, they'll always have something to do with God? That's what Paul's talking about. When he went to Athens, there were temples all over the place. There were statues all over the place. They were filled with thinking and discussion about God and gods and all this religious stuff. So you need to begin there. If there is no God, if there is no God, then why is it that one of the most human things about human existence is that we've got an idea, we have something in our heart that makes us think there's got to be something out there. I mean, I've never had a conversation with my dog, CB, my collie, coming in and saying, I'm not really sure that I built my house well enough for the worship of God, and I, my dog house just isn't good enough for that. Never. I've never seen her get down, and, you know, get down, and I can train her to sit, but she never kneels and prays. And you know what? If, if, if one of her puppies gets taken away from her, she never comes in for counseling, never struggles with what happened. I mean, I can run... My cat's the same way. I mean, I come into the driveway, they, they, they come right underneath the truck. How they elude death, I'll never know. Man, if I feed them and I give them water, man, they're totally satisfied. No God consciousness at all. Never even concerned about it. Now, if the material world is all there is, in other words, there's no invisible world, no immaterial world... If, there, if there's just material things, then why aren't you like animals? Why is it that every human being that you ever get with eventually gets involved in spiritual things? I mean, I've had scientists that when I was younger, they were very strongly, it's the material world, it's just stuff, and, and that's all that really counts. There's nothing beyond that. We're just a bag of chemicals. You know, the kind of a guy that goes up to his girlfriend, you know, he's falling in love and says, Honey, I want you to know, my cardiac, my, my cardiac heart right here is pumping red corpuscles for you. And the cells of my body, the neurological impulses are responding and sending signals to my brain. And, and it's producing hormonal flows that are generating a, a desire that makes me attracted to you. And I want you to marry me. How many of you girls want to marry a guy that talks like that? You all laugh about that, but you see, you're much more than that. None of you can live as a total materialist. Because, you're, because there's something inside of you. You see, your hunger for love, your hunger for meaning is a religious thing. You're reaching beyond. You, you, want, you, know, you, you have an idea. There ought to be a connectedness here somewhere. There ought to be, there ought to be, there ought to be something that I, can, that I can get close to that's like me, that satisfies me. That's why we, we go so much effort with the relationship. And that's part of this religious thing. We do that with the invisible presence, something that's out there. You see, the fact that human beings are incurably religious raises the issue. If there is no God then why all this fuss? In fact, you know what I really receive a lot of you know, insight into? Like, why is it that someone that denies my faith is so concerned to wipe mine out? And why, did, why are they often so interested in debating it with me? Why do they have such a hard time when I tell them I really believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born in Bethlehem? Why do they have so much trouble with that? You see, let's suppose I came up with the idea that, that I'm going to worship the, a great purple crocodile in the sky. 
and we just make up that fantastic story. I mean, who's going to get excited about that? They, they, would, they would probably put me in an insane asylum. But I really doubt that many people are going to get upset and want to debate and write articles and, 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 and form societies against it. They would just say, the guy's crazy. If he wants to believe in purple crocodiles, who cares? You see, what I'm trying to get you to think about, the fact that universally across this planet, it is totally ingrained in the human psyche that he's got to worship, she's got to worship. There's something beyond this. In fact, Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts, which is another way to state what I'm bringing out. If there is no God, then how do you explain the fact that you long for eternity and you long for being connected with the one that's out there? And Paul raises that with the Athenians. He says, here you are in this classical city. You're so religious. And it's the first step coming to grips with that impulse towards what's ultimately out there. If you're an agnostic, you need to ask yourself, why is there all this fuss about the belief in God? If I was an agnostic, that would, that would cause me sleepless nights. If as I think, there's no way I can know God, and there isn't any God probably, it would really bother me, all the fuss that human beings, people don't live as materialists. They live as spiritualists. And I want to tell you something else. You know what? The modern American that thinks that God, like the boss that you work through that's making big bucks and traveling all around the world and all that kind of stuff and thinks that your worship of God on a Sunday morning and all that stuff is so nutty and crazy. You know what? They're the nutty one. Do you realize that it's only a very few people in planet Earth among the population of human beings that don't understand how important spiritual battles and spiritual realities are? You see, if you were born in an Islamic culture, man, the, the issue of is there a God or not, that doesn't even come up. Of course there's an Allah. If you were in Bosnia, spiritual values, man, you kill and, and die over that. It's only, it's only in, in this, this, this secularistic kind of materialistic world that we live in in the Western world. Throughout Latin America, they're all into spiritual things. Often it's on the evil side. They know the reality of spiritual forces on the evil side. So what I want you to know is that your friend that thinks you're so out of tune with reality, what I want to try to feed into you a little bit is it's the pagan that's out of tune with reality. It's a person that doesn't really think that, that there is something that's ultimately out there that's out of tune with reality. Point number two, Paul goes on. Look at the next verse, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Look at our second question. If there is, if God is not real, if God is not real, then how in the world was the universe created? You'll say, well, Dave, evolution can answer that. It's just probabilities and chance and matter and energy all mixed up together. When I was in chemistry in, in college, my professor, Dr. Calhoun, used to tell us a story of when he was working on his PhD at Ohio State University. And when he was there, he was a believer. He already knew Christ, but his professor came to him and said, Dr. Calhoun, it wasn't Dr. Calhoun then, it was just Calhoun. Calhoun, we're going to do something here. We're going to put a bunch of amino acids in a beaker. And we're going to load that beaker with electrodes, and we're going to zap it with, like, lightning energy. And then we're going to analyze what's generated in that beaker, and we're going to see if we can generate some, some sequences of amino acids. And Calhoun used to tell us he was scared to death. He says, man alive, I'm a believer in God, and I'm going to prove that God doesn't exist because I'm going to generate a sequence of amino acids in a beaker. 
I'll never forget the agony of, of Dr. Calhoun telling us how he felt as a young student. But then he told us one day he went back to his room and he started to think about this. Here you had the most sophisticated minds in the field of chemistry and physics and biology in the United States focused in this lab. You've got some of the most sophisticated equipment. You've already started out with raw materials. You zap it with a million volts of electricity. And on and on it goes. And he began to realize that we think we're being scientific. We're creating, you know, probabilities. And what, what Calhoun began to realize is they weren't going to the lab throwing beakers around, busting them, and throwing amino acids around the room, and, and you know, kind of you know, zapping this person with electricity and this solution and mixing a little water. They weren't having a, a water fight in the lab. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't just probabilities. It wasn't just happening. It was all intricately designed. And you can believe evolution. You know what evolution's basic faith position is? Given enough time, anything can happen. Again and again, that's what you come up with. And if there isn't any ultimate creator, then the basic idea is given enough time, anything can happen. And interesting enough, when I ask evolution, well, where, you know, how, what did it start with? They say, well, matter and energy are eternal. How do you know they're eternal? Faith. And then you'll worship that, and you're a materialist. So if there is no God, you need to come to grips with it. Now, you can believe, as an evolutionist, that given enough time, anything can happen. But what I want you to know, if you believe that, you're just as much committed to faith as I am. And to me, I would not want to bank my eternal soul, bank my eternal soul on probabilities and chance. And that anything can happen, because I'm not sure mathematically that there is enough time in all of existence for, for, for the universe to happen. Or for you to happen. As you're sitting there, you are intricately complex. Some of the kids are studying natural science, and you study the functioning of the cell. Just take a human cell you've been studying in that. The intricacy of, of the membranes and the intricacy of the, of the different parts of that cell are incredible. And you don't even give a thought to it. And you tell me, oh, it just, it just, it was like an explosion in my kid's room. Any one of you ought to know if you have any teenagers that you leave things to probability, you leave things to chance, you do not get order. You do not get beauty. You get a total mess. And you've got to invest energy and planning and intense discipline into the system to get it straightened up again. You know why? And that's why, and that's why Carl Sagan starts out when I was younger talking about Material can explain it all. Evolution will explain it all. And as he grows older, I start hearing all these spiritual things about moral values and ultimate things that must be out there. Not the Christian God. But all of a sudden, Carl Sagan, in talking about all these things that we call values and spirits, it's all religious. You can trace that with almost any materialistic scientist. They start out in their 20s, everything's just stuff. When they're in their 80s, they're talking about all the immaterial things. Why? Because it's awfully hard to believe that just matter can generate the love that you know just to talk about some invisible things that mean so much to you. Truth, intimate relationships between people, you just can't explain that. And that's why Paul says, and that's why Genesis begins, in the beginning God. You see, the only way to make sense of the universe is to begin in the beginning. There was an intelligent, personal, infinite being who's much bigger than any one of us who gave purpose and direction and meaning to this universe and he spoke it into existence. By faith we understand that the things we can see were formed out of the one that we can't see. 
and from the words of the one that we can hear. And if there is no God, then you need to look around you and by faith you're saying it's all just an accident and you're an accident and you're not going to be able to live very meaningfully with that kind of a viewpoint. In fact, existentialism will say you ought to just kill yourself if that's all there is. And obviously that is a, that is a the decision and a viewpoint from the pit of hell because the ultimate creator wants you to live. Look at the next thing Paul does. He talks about the creator. Third question. If God is not real, then how are you existing? Look at verse 25 through 28. And there we read, it says, And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything at all, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. For God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not really far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. If there is no God, then what about your existence? You ever stop and think about that? Let me illustrate that. Some of you that have some real prideful friends, any of you have some prideful friend that says, I'm the master of my faith, kind of like what I read the last time we were together, you know, I'm the captain of my soul. How many of you, any, anybody have friends, have you met some people like that, you know, I'm in control of my life and I'm responsible for everything? How many of you slept last night? How many of you, went, how many of you slept last night? Now, how many of you can remember while you were sleeping times where you don't remember anything? Well, you couldn't remember anything, right? How many of you know, just think about it, you don't remember it, but just think. Last night, there were times when you were lying flat on your bed, your jaw was a little bit crooked, and saliva dribbled off on your pillow, and you don't even remember it. I want to ask you, you're so prideful, you think you control your faith, how do you think you kept everything going then? Where was your consciousness then? Where was your existence then? And your friends think you're such an idiot for thinking there's some ultimate being that you can depend upon and you can lean on, and they say that it's, it's, it's not really with it to believe that ancient stuff. Man, we believe, man, we're in control of everything. And every one of them go to bed and drool over their pillows every night and can't even remember half the time of what's going on. I mean, they're just in the ozone layer, just totally blank space. When I'm with David this week on Tuesday and David can't communicate with me, he can't talk to me, I say, David, squeeze my left hand, and he couldn't do it. And I'm not sure that he, that he can hear me. Where is, you know, who's, who's, who's giving him existence? And I want to share with you, my friend is a lot more than a bag of chemicals. I mean, I understand. I've had enough chemistry and biology and anatomy and everything. I understand, you know, what's going on in his body. But I want to share with you that, that what this text is telling you is every one of you know, in him, you live and move and have your being. And what I want you to do is I want you to realize that, that if, if you don't believe in God, it's awfully hard to explain that. And there's tremendous rest. You know one of the greatest struggles of your soul? is some of you are terrified to minister to someone like Dave now who, who is wrestling and we're praying for healing but he wrestles on the edge of eternity. Some of you in your, in your life process, you're, you just want to run away from that kind of a thing because you're so scared about what might happen. And Jesus wants to bring comfort to you. 
You see, in him you live and move and have your being. That's why King David wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when disease plagues my body, and there's times when I'm unconscious, and there's times when I can't communicate, and there's times when I'm weak and I desperately need healing, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does it say? I don't need to fear any evil, and evil is really present in those kind of situations because it's part of the antithesis of God, part of the antithesis of the breath of life, and it's part of the curse that we're still living under. But God promises that, that we do not need to fear any evil. Why? Because he is with us. Isn't it great to know? That's why I'm not an agnostic. Man, who would want to live thinking I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, when I know beyond a shadow of a doubt there could be a time when, when you're trying to help my arms to move. You know, am I going to stand up in bed at that particular point and say, here I am, strong Dave Wurtson. Oh, how we need someone beyond ourselves, And you've got it, friends, in God. In him you live and move and have your being. My personality, Dave Wurtson's personality, your personality, is a gift from this ultimate being. That's why you deserve to live it for him. It's his gift. And you'll find tremendous rest. This might sound like theology, brothers and sisters, but it will give tremendous peace and security and rest for your souls. Because one of the biggest struggles of your life is to try to hang on to your existence. And to be so afraid of that existence being lost. And what we're learning today is in him you live and you move and you have your being and you can rest. Because your loving daddy in heaven is going to nurture your existence. And he promises in Christ he'll do that forever. What a great, great thing. In fact, Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be fine. Why did the Lord give you his existence? So that you would seek him. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And I want to share something with you. Some of you might be sitting here and you're saying, Dave, God seems so far away. He isn't. He really objectively isn't. You see, God has given you your heartbeat. He's given you your mental processes. He's given you consciousness. You know why? Because he wants you to know him. And he's closer than your breath. He might seem far away, but you're the one that's far away. He's not far away at all. He's right here, right there working with us. And what a tremendous comfort that is for me. You know, there's sometimes when I emotionally feel like it's all darkness and it feels like he's, he's, he's way out there in eternal space somewhere. He's in a totally other dimension. And I just have to fly totally by my biblical instruments. I just have to totally just affirm he promises me that he's closer than my heartbeat. And when I look back over my life experience, I know that he was there. And he was sustaining. And he was helping me. And he was directing me. If there is no God, how do you explain? How do you explain your very existence? A couple more things that will be done. It says, if God is not real, then why do we create so many counterfeit gods? Look at verse 29. Paul is trying to get across to him to them, if you as a human being are the offspring of God, in other words, you are made in his image. He doesn't use that terminology because he's speaking to a pagan audience. He says, you are the offspring of God. He says this, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made with man's design and skill. Don't ever worship an idol. Don't ever worship anything that man's hands made. 
because you are the one that reflects God. You're the statue, you might say, that gives you some kind of an insight of what the ultimate being in the universe is. Don't ever worship something that's immaterial, that can't think, that can't feel, that can't decide. And don't settle for anything less than the ultimate, infinite one who can think, feel, and decide. That's what's wrong with making Christmas just your gifts. I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. Buy gifts for your kids. Don't make it the essence of your Christmas. Why not? Because you'll be disappointed. And so will your kids. In your home life, worship. Worship God. Pray with your kids. Thank God for the gift of Jesus coming into the world. Because those gifts, if you give it as a mom and dad to your kids, those, those gifts will never break. And as your kids grow older, right now with their junior hires, 11 and 12 and 13, they're going to say, ah, dad, why are you praying again with us? They're going to tell you that. But you know what? When they're 25, they're going to put their arm around you and they're going to say, dad, thanks so much for the heritage of truth that you gave. Thank you for struggling to teach its value that Christmas was not about stuff. It was about the gift of the Savior. You see, it's idolatry. You see, you understand what I'm just getting at? We think of the Athenians being idolaters because they bowed down before, you know, wood and stone and gold. But what an idolater is, it's, it's when Dave Wurtzen motivates himself in the course of a week towards a material thing. I feel like if I can get that particular article of clothing or if I could get that car, if I could get that money, if I could have that salary, then I would really be somebody. I would exist and I would be important. That's idolatry. It's saying, this will bring ultimate meaning to my soul. And Paul says, man, just think. You're not stuff yourself. You're a person. You're into relationships. You're into closeness. You're into love. Material things can never meet the needs of your soul. So don't ever think they can. And ultimately, you need to connect with the ultimate person. That's what Paul's arguing. But he says, the re- but, but, he says we, but as human beings, we created all these counterfeit gods. And Paul twists the argument this way. He says, if there isn't any God, then why are we always counterfeiting? Why do we keep running towards other objects of worship? And I never forget, Dr. Ferris told me one day when we were talking about this kind of thing, he just looked at me point blank and said, have you ever seen a counterfeit of a brown paper sack? How many of you have ever seen a counterfeit brown paper sack? And then David looked at me and said, you don't ever counterfeit something that's not really exquisite and expensive and of value. The reason there's so many false counterfeit gods is because there's the ultimate, real, genuine one. Very important. Final point. If God is not real, then why do you feel so guilty when you do something wrong? Look at verse 30. It says, in the the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. In other words, God is not unkind. Some of you, I hear it all the time. God is, God is so mean, and I don't believe in God because he's always doing mean things, and he's so full of judgment. What a caricature as we talk more about what God is really like. God, it says right here, did not zap people throughout the Old Testament when they immediately did something wrong. God is gracious and he's kind. And there were people like Job and Melchizedek and, and, and Naaman the Syrian. There were all kinds of people outside Israel that followed the revelation that God was giving him and, and them and they sought God and they were related to God. God has been working. God is the great redeemer that keeps coming after all of us. And that's what Paul is reminding him. He says, in the past, God overlooked the ignorance of man. And he graciously wooed people to himself all through the Old Testament period. But he says this, we live in a very special time today 
Because he says, now he commands all people everywhere. There's the discipleship mandate. We need to go in all the universe, all this world, I mean, and declare to people everywhere to repent. That means to turn around. Why? Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So I want to ask you a question. Why do you feel that you should be judged? Remember the first time that you, that you went into your mom's purse as a little kid and stole that? How did you feel about it? When my collie again, you know, comes and and steals one of the kids' toys, for example, when they were little kids, she runs up, grabs it with her teeth, whoom! We don't have talks of, of confession and forgiveness. You get a, a newspaper, hit her on the, no, the nose. That's how you teach them. But how many of you kids in the audience can remember stealing something and remember how you felt about it? And I want to ask you, why do you feel that way? Because there's a God. He's a God of ethics, a God of morality, a God of right. Why is it that across this world, anytime someone hears the Ten Commandments, even in the progressive 60s, even in the progressive 60s, when I talked to college students and we got by all the group think and all the, the macho stuff, when I talked to guys on, do you think it's a good idea not to commit adultery? All those guys would say, yeah, I want to marry a woman that will not commit adultery. And if we commit adultery, we know that it's wrong. We all want someone not to break into our rooms and steal our stereos. And if they do, we get really upset about it and we demand justice. Where does all that come from? Animals don't worry about that. They don't worry about that at all. Why do you worry about it so much? Why? Some of you are saying, I'm not going to believe in God today. Because God's unfair. Your very idea of unfairness comes from God. Your very statement says you ought to believe in God because you're so concerned about justice and morality and ethics. Why do you care so much? Because there is an ultimate being in the universe who's moral, who's ethics. But you know what? He's not just... What I've done today is called natural theology. Things you can know just by looking at the, the sun come up. Things you can know just by looking at yourself. Things you can just know by looking at existence. But you know what? That great ultimate being in the universe has sent his son into the world. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what happened at Bethlehem. And God is saying, this is the one that you're going to stand before that's going to evaluate your life. And it says God proved that that's so because he was resurrected from the dead. We're going to go on in the coming times together and we're going to talk about the doctrines of Christ. And, And there's very good reasons to believe that the resurrection is true. And that Jesus did conquer death. But I want to share something with you. Some of you are saying, Dave, can you absolutely prove to us what you shared today? No. In other words, I can't materialize God for you. In other words, I'm I'm never going to invite you on a Sunday morning and I'm going to say, all right, Jesus, visibly appear before us. So all these people can come and put their fingers in your your palms and in your side. Now, Jesus one day is going to do that of his own free will. He's coming back. And you know what? All decisions will be off. You will have decided when he comes back. You say, Dave, why hasn't God done that for us right now? And I don't like that. In fact, I'm not going to believe in Jesus because it's all this faith stuff. You know what? Every one of you live by faith. Let me close with this. When I married Mary, I made a tremendous commitment of faith. I, in fact, I've gotten to know her parents better. 
Man, there's stuff I know about Mary now, man. I don't know whether I would have gone through with it. No, that's not true. I had no idea when, when I made my vows to Mary, just a little bit after we made our marriage vows, we went out and went, worked in Southern California. Some of my friends, I thought they were my friends, took her out sailing, propositioned her. I had no idea she would have the character to say, no, I'm married. How would I know that? Sure, I had some things to base it upon, but it was a tremendous act of faith. I had no idea that Mary would have organizational skills and, and her personality would totally balance mine. No idea. It was a total act of faith. And every one of you have to make life-determining decisions based upon what you can observe about them, what you can learn about them, and you have to make a gut-level decision, can I trust them? What I've done for you today is not prove to you philosophically, absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God exists. But what I've done is given you what you have to do in every relationship you have. You can listen. God has talked to you. He's given you some major signposts, major evidence. It's just like in a courtroom. You have a witness. You listen to what the witness says, and then you have to make a faith commitment as to what's true and what's not true. And what I'm telling you, in my own life, I've chosen to put my faith not in myself, not in my own reasoning abilities, but I've chosen to put my faith in the ultimate one I can trust. I believe in the depths of my soul that 2,000 years ago, this invisible God became visible in history, in a real manger. He was born in a real womb of a real mother. And he came here to reveal this invisible God to us. I trust with all my heart that you join with me in that conviction of your soul. As a leader, it begins with, why do I believe there's a God? And I've given you some strong reasons that Paul gave to the Athenians of why we should believe that God is not a projection of our own minds. He's not just an, a comforting idea. He is the ultimate one who's really there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we've been able to talk about some very, very important truth about yourself and about how we can know you. I thank you that we've been able to trace the kind of argumentation that the Apostle Paul used with a group of secular people. Lord, I pray that you would take our t discussion together today and now I want you to multiply it throughout the week and multiply it as different ones go on business trips. Lord, I just would ask you that you would, you would make it like a seed that's planted. I pray that you might use it to comfort some of my brothers and sisters that might be going through a time of doubt. I pray that you might use it in the mind of some of my young friends that, that are really wrestling with how they can know whether or not you're really there. And I just ask you, Lord Jesus, that they would, they would, this would just be a beginning time together, that they would take these questions, that they would take this passage, and I pray that they will understand that there are very good, solid reasons as to why we believe that you are there and that you have sent your Son and that he did rise again from the dead. I thank you that you're seeking them even though we don't seek you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.